You're listening to Design Tomorrow. In the last few years, the digital music experience has gotten very, very good. Incredible, really. Alone on my drive into work just this morning, I said aloud, play music by Chopin. And just a few seconds later, my car was filled with the beautiful sound of his nocturne for piano number one. Now, to be fair, I've abridged that experience ever so slightly. The truth is, I actually addressed a certain proper named machine first, and then said, play music by Chopin. Hey, play music by Chopin. And there was a bit of waiting. You don't have anything by Smash Mouth in your music. And then I had to do it again. Hey, play music by Chopin. You don't have any musicals music. And then I had to do it again and really emphasize the name, saying it as phonetically as I could, like show pan. You don't have anything by smoking in your music. And then I did that a couple more times before I said it more like choppin, as in choppin' wood. Choppin. Which did the trick. Okay. Here's some Frédéric Francois Chopin. Either voice interfaces aren't as good as we'd like them to be yet, or I need to use mine much more often so that it will learn to hear my voice more accurately. Either way, just a tiny hiccup there. But then, then... I was basically Captain Picard cruising through space with history's entire catalog of music just a politely spoken request away. And that was really cool. For the rest of my 25-minute drive, I listened to a variety of pieces from Chopin's life. It was lovely, just about as seamless as you could imagine. I thought nothing of lists, or buttons, tags, or cover art, I hardly even looked at that little screen mounted to my dashboard. It was just me and the music. This is, I think, exactly the sort of media experience we associate with the future, isn't it? When it comes to music, from the first iPod to the Shuffle to Pandora to the many streaming services available today, we've been moving more and more toward the music itself and away from the interface, away from the edges, the container, and more toward the content. That, for the most part, seems like a good thing. Today, I want to think about that, about the way we interface with digital experiences, and wade a bit into a debate that rages on about whether our work as creators, as the makers of interfaces and the material they support, is helping or hurting. But as always, I also want to take those thoughts, the ones that sit at the surface of what we do, and point them inward, to think deeply about the nature of the interface, what it is, and what it says about us, the people who make it. 
You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. There is an ongoing battle between minimalism and maximalism. Chrome in the command line, less and more. That's not new. As long as our brains are prone to uncontrolled bouts of both obsessing over details and glazing over them, this will be the way of the world. But in the digital world, we've come a long way. We've gone from navigating the world's information through curated, drill-down directories to being able to just ask questions, out loud, of machines that will listen. Say what you will about how that's getting done, how we've traded privacy for convenience, and I've said lots about that. But the reality is, it's getting done. And as far as I'm concerned, that's happened really, really quickly. But not everyone sees things that way, that the digital experience is actually getting less interfacey. And if we're going to wade into that debate for now, let's just stick with where we started, with streaming music. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. Quote, Our role as librarians and archivists has outpaced our role as cultural consumers. Engaging with media in a traditional sense is often the last thing we do. In the digital ecosystem, the apparatuses surrounding the artifact are more engaging than the artifact itself. Management, acquisition, distribution, archiving, filing, redundancy is the cultural artifact's new content. In an unanticipated twist to John Perry Barlow's 1994 prediction that in the digital age, we'd be able to enjoy wine without the bottles, We've now come to prefer the bottles to the wine. End quote. So that's a passage from a cleverly titled essay by Kenneth Goldsmith called It's a Mistake to Mistake Content for Content. Now, had I never used services like Spotify or Google Play or Tidal or Apple Music, I might just agree with Goldsmith. After all, 
It's fun to be grumpy about interaction design. It's even more fun to take it up a notch and get apocalyptic about human culture. And so there's another person I want to quote who's kind of all about that. Nicholas Carr. You know Nick Carr. He's the guy who wrote, Google is making us stupid. Now I came upon that essay by Goldsmith by way of another essay by Nick Carr. One grumpily titled, In the Kingdom of the Board, The One-Armed Bandit is King. Very on-brand. So in this case, Nick is not satisfied to just complain about Spotify or Apple or any of the other big music services out there. He's an ecumenical grump, and so he pulls poor little SoundCloud into his vortex. Riffing on Goldsmith, he goes after, wait for it, the waveform. Here's Carr. Who needs to listen to the song when one can watch the song unspool colorfully on the screen through all its sonic peaks and valleys triggering the display of comments as it goes. Whatever lies on the other side of the interface seems less and less consequential. The interface is the thing. The interface is the content. End quote. Is it really? SoundCloud started as an audio community where people like you and me could upload anything, spoken word, field recordings, stories, and music, to share and discuss. It's grown to include more popular-level material and functionality, but using it to undergird such an enormous pronouncement about the erosion of the content experience fails to recognize its unique context and design. And specifically complaining about the waveform, how the dynamic range of an audio file is visualized, is just straight-up weird to me. Like, why is that the thing that bugs you? Nevertheless, Carr goes on with his indictment. And so, bored by the content, bored by the art, bored by the experience, we become obsessed with the interface. We seek to master the mechanism's intricate, fascinating functions, downloading and uploading, archiving and cataloging, monitoring readouts, watching time counts, streaming and pausing and skipping, clicking buttons marked with hearts or uplifted thumbs, We become culture's technicians. We become bureaucrats of experience. End quote. Good heavens. Okay, this is what's called a moral panic. But we can laugh at this one given that there are far more things in this world which merit true concern than that our jukeboxes are just too fun to play with. For a list of such things, see some of my previous episodes where I attempt to remind us all that there are greater problems in the world worth solving other than how to make people stay inside of software longer. Now that being said, and since many of us depend upon the tiny digital problems in the weeds of the meadow of abundance in which we all live to give us something to do for a living, I think these two guys are wrong, wrong, wrong. And I think that's worth talking a little bit more about. Now, first of all, I will risk a similarly uninformed generalization by saying, come on, nobody does these things. Downloading and uploading? Archiving? Last time I checked, the whole idea behind cloud-based music streaming services is that you don't need to do this. Sure, you can, but you don't have to. Cataloging and tagging even are continually less relevant actions as playlists, automated, celebrity-curated and user-crafted, and radio stations are preferred. Oh, and as for monitoring readouts and watching time counts, I'm not even sure I know what that means. 
But whatever. No, nobody does this. It just sounds good to write it. Carr is now writing poetry. And here's the odd part for me. I typically agree with Nicholas Carr and lament that he's so often pilloried as a Luddite, when in the extra clickbait reality in which we live, he puts forth a much more nuanced perspective on technology and culture than anyone seems to have the patience to parse. But this time around, I'm just not on board. Where is this panic coming from anyway? How are we culture's technicians and bureaucrats of experience if we're as inert as Carr says we are? This is all alarm and no fire, if you ask me. Not to mention, quite possibly an opinion only someone who has never used a music streaming service could hold. Now Carr continues, though, with a curious statement. Not one that chills out his argument, unfortunately, but one that makes an interesting comparison. Carr writes this, As the manufacturers of digital slot machines have discovered, a well-designed interface breeds obsession. It's not the winnings or the losses that keep the players feeding money into the slots. It's the joy of operating a highly responsive machine. End quote. Here we go. Look, I'm completely with Carr in lamenting the inherent cynicism of embracing addiction as a central component of user experience design. How many articles have I come across at Fast Company and Forbes and their ilk extolling the brilliance of such and such a designer who, in bringing the insights of the casino to the website, has made it the gold mine it supposedly is? If it was just one, it'd be too many. But it's been many, and each one has been met with my righteous disgust. You may remember this from episode 8 on the voice interface as a pusher of digital addiction. But also, it's been met with my skepticism. After all, these so-called gold mines are always propped up by advertising, or in most cases, the hope of future advertising. We are all lured to these digital caves by signs reading, Gold Inside. And the deeper we go, it's just more signs for gold that seems less and less likely to be there. But then we're all trapped in the cave. See, good design is supposed to help people get things done, not trap them in a dopamine labyrinth, no matter how much they think they want to go there in the first place. And yes, I'd say the same thing about an actual casino. They're simply not good for people. They offer the illusion of gain to anyone who enters, and perhaps that's good enough for some interpretations of capitalist theory, but they do not work fiscally unless they withhold their promise. A casino always takes more than it gives, and that's more easily done by making it a game. So why on earth we think it's okay to do this online, simply as a way of getting people to spend more time clicking things and then allow that to reframe our very concept of success, I don't know. We shouldn't. But let's get back to the music. While the casino is an apt metaphor for something like Facebook, it simply isn't for something like a subscription-based streaming music service. Addiction mechanics only make sense in a context where depth of attention equals depth of data you can sell to advertisers. There are many of those contexts online, but subscription-based streaming is just not one of them. As long as the service is a well-designed middleman between me and the artist, it will always be more effective when its goal is to help me enjoy the content, not the container. 
Over the years, I've personally subscribed to many of these services. Audio, Mog, Beats, Tidal, Back to Audio Again, Google Music, and most recently, Spotify. Aside from building playlists, my experience of them has been almost entirely non-tweaky. Again, I have no idea what Goldsmith or Carr are using, but whatever it is, it doesn't sound much like anything I've ever experienced, at least not recently. Now, back when I used to use iTunes to manage my personal MP3 library, I was constantly organizing and reorganizing, tagging and retagging, grouping and regrouping, shuffling and skipping, all of that. And as a maker of interfaces, it always seemed like there was opportunity to redesign the levers and dials. But for many years now, that MP3 library has sat on an external hard drive, unplayed. For me, the bottom line is this. I could fiddle with the mechanics of these tools. I could joylessly skip forward through every song a playlist presents to me. I could toil for hours, making playlists and building a library, presumably according to Carr, because I've fallen so hard for the interface that I can be nothing other than bored by the music itself. What a weird idea. But sure, all of this is made simple and easy by design, and I could choose to interpret this design as cynical or even fundamentally adversarial to me, the music lover, as Carr seems to, but I don't. Instead, I think it's more reasonable to conclude that the people who design streaming music services must keep their sincere love for music, including the experience of discovering it, listening to it, building a collection, and sharing it with others in balance with their goal of making a viable business out of their particular jukebox. Now what's interesting about that is that I believe this balance will continue to push these services farther and farther away from the particulars that seem to disturb Carr. Why he doesn't see that, I don't know. But immersion in the music, not the interface, is today's reality thanks to the sophistication of the design of streaming services and the sophistication of the voice interface. My little commute anecdote at the beginning of the show is just one in a million that serves to emphasize that this is just the beginning of the voice interface's moment. Again, we can be excited about that or cautious or somewhere in the middle. But here's how Carr concludes. In a world dense with stuff, a captivating interface is the perfect consumer good. It packages up the very act of consumption as a product. We consume our consuming. The machine zone is where we spend most of our time these days. It extends well beyond the traditional diversions of media and entertainment and gaming. The machine zone surrounds us. You go for a walk, and you find that what inspires you is not the scenery or the fresh air or the physical pleasure of the exercise, but rather the mounting step count on your smartphone's exercise app. If I go just a little farther, you tell yourself, glancing yet again at the interface, the app will reward me with a badge. The mechanism is more than beguiling. The mechanism knows you, and it cares about you. You give it your attention, and it tells you that your attention has not been wasted. End quote. It seems clear here that Carr is troubled by something, yet has somewhat arbitrarily chosen streaming music as his scapegoat. Not only is there a better example for each of his criticisms in social media like Facebook and junk media like Gawker or HuffPo or BuzzFeed, but the fact that he must conclude by digressing into a complaint about fitness trackers shows that his discomfort is bigger than any of the particular digital experiences he's invoked. 
Not to mention the fact that I believe that the greatest problem here is not that the most commonly used interfaces are designed to ensnare us in a permanent state of unproductive knob tweaking. It's that they're designed to be so simple to use that configuration options, especially as they pertain to privacy, are buried, or for the paranoid amongst us, intentionally hidden. Simplicity is great, of course, but not at the expense of understanding, of understanding how something works, both for and against us. What perhaps began with Steve Jobs selling a device on the notion that it just works has followed a path of increasing opacity, our tools becoming more and more sophisticated and at the same time, somehow easier to use. Now that is a matter of design. Whether it's good design or what we today call a dark pattern, well, that's a matter of worldview. Or perhaps more cynically, what side of the command line you're on. As a longtime reader and appreciator of Nick Carr, I've observed that his technological angst is and always has been like mine. It's about the balance of experience and mediation, and where in that balance the truth of our existence, of human being, lies. And that, of course, won't be illuminated by a technology, nor a debate about design. Technology is a manifestation of being human, but it won't make us more or less human. After all, more human lacks a precise meaning. If we can't agree on what being human is exactly, then how can we agree on what undermines the human experience or what enhances it? This is the struggle of embodied consciousness, to conceive of something more, something other than our bodies growing changing and dying on this world, yet to be so bound to the body as to question the integrity of our perception outside of it. In other words, intellect and intuition in a permanent dance within our heads. That is the human condition. And of course, the condition in which all the artifacts of our culture are made. The music and the interface. Discomfort, then? is to be expected. Physical, sure, but emotional discomfort especially. And, to Nicholas Carr's implicit point, questioning is an essential coping mechanism and tool for sense-making. In fact, I think his particular discomfort and questioning are understandable and relatable. However, it seems as if a real rubric is lacking. Without one, the questioning too quickly becomes judgment. You feel uncomfortable about something, and you blame that thing which triggers the feeling, though it probably isn't the root cause. No one should blame their Fitbit for a societal-level disconnection with the physical world. Now, I've been guilty of that too many times myself, especially in my professional capacity as a designer. Who hasn't? We all have a sense for our humanity, both actual and aspirational, who we are and who we want to be but it's one that ebbs and flows and evolves with time. And without further qualification, how can it not make for a kind of mania? The kind that with every technological advance declares either utopia come or apocalypse now. The truth, of course, is somewhere in between. No individual technology 
has that kind of power. But the choice to make something and then to use it, that is powerful. Every individual choice like that becomes the platform for thousands more. The technological worldview compounds and metastasizes reality faster than perhaps anything else of which we can conceive. But maybe there's a way we can regain control. In an article in 2009, on which he expanded in 2011 in his book What Technology Wants, Kevin Kelly talked about how the Amish community makes technological choices. The idea that they reject all technology, he points out, is a myth, and of course, an absurdity. They wear clothing, they build homes, they use simple machines and tools every day, all varying degrees in complexity. Here's a bit more on that from Kelly himself. Well, I, while I'm preaching, in a certain sense, we want to actually increase the amount of technology in the world. I myself am actually trying to minimize it in my own life. Okay, and the reason why is, is that what it turns out to be is, is, is to kind of find that place, that those tools that, 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 that are best for your genius. You, it's not all technology. It's going to be a very select amount of technology, and those other technologies are actually distractions. And so in a certain sense, what you're actually trying to do is find that small set of technologies that are appropriate for you and ignoring the rest. That's what the Amish do in a certain sense. They're not Luddites. They're just very selective in a curious way. I mean, they have um, horse and buggy and, uh, you know, bonnets and stuff, but they still, but they use disposable diapers. They're really into chemical fertilizers. They use genetically modified crops. Okay, so they're, they're very, very selective. There's more technology that's being invented, and there's more of it every year than we could possibly ever ourselves adopt. So we have to have some criteria. Some, I mean, we can't just randomly try stuff. We have to have, begin to cultivate some kind of criteria, narrow it down while we encourage the increasing choices for others. What is absurd about describing the Amish as people who reject technology is that technology is too broad to be survivably rejected. Technology is one of the few things that actually distinguishes us, humanity, from the rest of biology. Making things, and making things that help us make things, is an essentially human thing to do. Not just a modern thing to avoid in the interest of preserving something more pure. Unless, maybe you're a groundhog or something. Although, I suppose you could make a case for a groundhog's tunnel being a technology of a sort. See, technology is too big to be avoided, even for groundhogs. So from the outside looking in, then, it may look as if the Amish have somewhat arbitrarily chosen a point in technological development to stop. Yes to the button, no to the zipper. Yes to the wheel, no to the motor. But that's the myth at work. As Kelly points out, quote, the Amish are steadily adopting technology at their pace. They are slow geeks. As one Amish man put it, we don't want to stop progress. We just want to slow it down. But their manner of slow adoption is instructive. They are selective. They know how to say no and are not afraid to refuse new things. They evaluate new things by experience instead of by theory. They let early adopters get their jollies by pioneering new stuff under watchful eyes. They have criteria by which to select choices. Technologies must enhance family and community and distance themselves from the outside world. The choices are not individual, but communal. The community shapes and enforces technological direction. It seems to me that the Amish rubric of selecting, evaluating, and then finally integrating is one that we, as a society, could stand to learn from. 
The choices are not individual, but communal. The community shapes and enforces technological direction. End quote. It seems to me that the Amish rubric of selecting, evaluating, and then finally integrating is one that we, as a society, could stand to learn from. There are plenty of digital tools that are by no means edifying in the Amish sense, obviously. But there are also plenty which are, in small ways and in big ones. I don't love most social networks, and I tend to evaluate them low on the edification scale, both for me personally, as well as for us as a culture. But I'd be wrong to conclude that for everyone, to the extent of calling for a ban. On a smaller scale, I don't love every music streaming service out there, but I can't deny the fact that they're getting better and better at letting me just enjoy and explore music. I might miss that if I judged them all on my understanding of what they do without actually giving them a try. On that note, Kevin Kelly offers a fitting admonition. Quote, This method works for the Amish, but can it work for the rest of us? I don't know. It's not really been tried yet. And if the Amish hackers and early adopters teach us anything, it's that you have to try first. Try first and relinquish later if need be. We're good at trying first, not good at relinquishing, except as individuals. To fulfill the Amish model, we'd have to get better at relinquishing as a group. Social relinquishing. Not merely a large number as in a movement, but a giving up that relies on mutual support. I've not seen any evidence of that happening, but it would be a telling sign if it did. End quote. Technology is, in all its forms, an interface. It's the frame we've constructed through which we see the world. It's how we use our reality. And so technology, whether designed well or not, isn't really the problem. We, when we don't think critically about what we make and how it's used and how it might change to make that experience better, we create the problem. When we expose too much, we distract from the tool's purpose. When we expose too little, we make it too easy for the tool to be misunderstood and misused. And as technology has become more and more complex... Like now, when we use that word to describe software-driven ecosystems in which the majority of our conscious experience happens, as well as in the past when we used it to describe single-function tools like a hammer, the burden we all carry to understand the interface experience has gotten much, much heavier. Creating a good interface is as much a moral act as it is a technical one. It requires accountability perhaps someday to a governing body which we all trust to balance the many conditions and values that might influence matters of interface. But right now, today, accountability to one another. Care for whether the things we make make life better for others. A golden rule to design for others as we would have designed for us may be a gross simplification, but it's a start. It's a way for us, if we all take it seriously, to at least slow down and debate the would-have part before we commit to our next new button or to hiding one that once existed.
all friends. That's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. Now, I say that at the end of every episode, and every now and then, one of you does it. And so I deeply appreciate that. Knowing that this show is something you value is all the compensation I need to keep making it. But your reviews especially carry even more weight than that. In fact, nothing I can do on my own, no amount of outside promotion, networking, or tweeting can match one public statement of support from you. I can't review my own show, but when you do, someone else will discover the show who would never have otherwise. And so today, would you open that door to someone? I know I'll be grateful, and I hope they will too. In the meantime, I'm always interested in hearing from you. I've had some great interactions with listeners lately, and their feedback has helped me in continuing to shape this show for the better. So if there's anything you'd like to change, let me know. You'll probably be successful. You can find me on Twitter at Design Tomorrow. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also email me directly at chris at designtomorrow.co. And remember, what we do today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.